0: Like mushrooms for culinary reasons and the symbolism of this their their connection all that mycelium spreading under the ground touches the plant and tree roots it creates a relationship helps communicate in ways that we don't understand between these plants and mushrooms are neither plant nor animal right a kingdom unto themselves perhaps a kingdom underappreciated because it lives under our feet yet could help humans get a leg up on depression anxiety and PTSD. On this episode of Traverse Talks, Sam Chapman from Oregon's Healing Advocacy Fund explains how psilocybin from certain mushrooms can aid the mental health crisis and how his organization is supporting Measure 109, a law that legalized the first ever psilocybin therapy program in the United States. You're the executive director for the Healing Advocacy Fund, and it's a nonprofit that's supporting the implementation of Measure 109 in Oregon. For our listener, can you tell us what Measure 109 is?
1: Yes, Measure 109 is the first ever statewide legal psilocybin therapy program where anyone over the age of 21 um, can have access to licensed and regulated psilocybin therapy that will take place at a supervised service center uh, under the supervision of a facilitator? Why? Such a great question. So even prior to the pandemic, you know, Oregon had been facing a very acute mental health crisis. I think one in four people were experiencing some level of depression or anxiety. And I think that it doesn't take much effort for any of us to think about, if not ourselves, people who might be struggling, uh, whether it be with depression, anxiety, um, et cetera. And while there are certainly options out there that work for some people, um, there's a lot of people falling through the cracks of our current mental health care institution. And we really believe in psilocybin showing real promise for those who have not been helped. We don't believe it's a panacea. It is certainly not a cure-all, and it's not for everyone. But in terms of adding a powerful tool to the toolbox, we felt very strongly that now was the right time to introduce psilocybin services to the general public here in Oregon. And I think we've been successful so far, um, but we have a lot of work to do in in developing the rules and regulations and really ensuring that the foundation of this program is solid so we can continue to build um, and ensure that as many people as possible that stand to benefit from having access have access over the years to come.
0: I see. And I'm looking at your timeline here and you're currently in the rulemaking process. How difficult is it to establish A foundation for a statewide program that has to do with something people may still think is really bad?
1: You know, right now, a lot of our work is really based on education. You know, the number one opposition we've got from during the campaign wasn't actually opposition, it was a lack of information on what psilocybin was, how it worked, and who stands to benefit. And while the campaign won with 56% which was incredible for the first time anything like this had ever been introduced, there's still a lot of education to be done with the general public, with elected leaders, with local governments, and with the general voting population overall that supported this. Um, You know, I'll be honest, this is the first time a state program like this has ever been created. So while we absolutely have experts in a huge spectrum of areas from indigenous community stakeholders that have been involved in psilocybin ceremony and and healing practices for over, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years from, you know, that span of time to medical professionals that are absolutely working at the federal level in clinical trials in a much more regulated and rigid environment. We're bringing all of these people to the table here in Oregon and really trying to utilize all of their experience to craft a program that is not either a medical program or a recreational program. It is really a wellness program that provides a new path. And paving that new path is a challenge. It is hard work. But it is what I believe to be the righteous opportunity that we have in front of us here in Oregon to create a foundation that can continue to evolve and expand and really be hopefully a gold standard for other states and countries around the world to follow.
0: Mm. Now Oregon is known for doing things way before other people and other states would even allow themselves to think of things you have like the right to die, if I'm correct, yes, and and then recreational marijuana and so why Oregon? What is about you and your state that is open to this?
1: So I feel so privileged to live in Oregon in a state that, as you said, has really been on the front lines of so many progressive reforms, from drug policy to same-sex marriage to environmental, um, you know, proposals, things of that nature. And I think a lot of people may not recognize that not only did we create a legal pathway to psilocybin therapy here in Oregon, we also decriminalize small possession of all drugs. And I think that that is the way to go about this, right? And and here in Oregon, we're lucky that we got to do both at the same time. Um, and so I think, you know, why Oregon? Well, the time was right. We've, we've had a lot of research on psilocybin for some time now. And frankly, we've had a lot of indigenous wisdom and history uh, on the books for thousands of years. That has really helped show that psilocybin is physiologically safe, especially when we compare it to other current alternatives on the market from prescription pills, et cetera, right? And again, that's not to say that there isn't a time and a place for those uh, and that they do work for many people, but for many people, they don't. And in fact, for many people, they had, you know, the opposite intended effects that they had hoped for. And again, we really believe that psilocybin therapy stands to be a new tool in the toolbox. And, you know, a lot of the research that has been coming out of prestigious institutions like Johns Hopkins, NYU, UCLA, really show promise for psilocybin therapy for people who are struggling. And I think the combination between the research that has been coming out, you know, the FDA granting psilocybin, um, you know, as a breakthrough designation for uh, depression, really highlights that the hypocrisy of psilocybin still being illegal at the federal level. um, And I think it really highlights that psilocybin being illegal at the federal level is not a medical designation. It's a political designation, unfortunately. And I think it's like a state like Oregon that is really moving past that and saying, okay, federal government, we see you're not going to do anything about this. That's fine. We cannot wait any longer to provide new tools for people who stand to benefit here in Oregon. Why would we not Provide a new option for people that stands to show so much promise. And mm. so I think it was a little bit of timing, but really it was a combination of the research and the emotional heartstrings. You know, we all know someone who stands to benefit. And I think that when we're able to, you know, take them out of their shoes and into the shoes of someone they love that might stand to benefit, it changes the game in terms of the stigma that psychedelics and psilocybin has had, it really allows people to move through that at an accelerated rate to really better understand that maybe if this isn't it for me, that's not the question. It's do we want to help people and provide new opportunities? And the state of Oregon had a resounding yes in answering <laughs> that question in November
0: 2020. Oh, and I'm glad because I, I personally think that mushrooms are amazing. Psilocybin has, oh, my goodness, like you said, thousands of years with indigenous cultures opening up minds. There's something that I'm curious about. If you could explain, though, this idea of of how it can help somebody with, let's say, depression and how it relates to something called ego death.
1: Yeah. So a lot of the research that has been done in clinical trials has focused on depression and ego death. And the first thing I'll say is that I'm not a clinical researcher. Um, But from what I have read from the research, it really shows the ability for psilocybin to help people reset and rewire some of their neural pathways that really allows them to get out of their own way, if you will, and really allows people to step back in a way that helps them examine some of the preconceived notions that either society or our upbringing has really instilled in our thinking, which is often subconscious thinking that we're not proactively thinking about, but it's ingrained. We've been trained to think a certain way. We've been told we can or can't do things for certain reasons. And that has led us down one path or another. Psilocybin has allowed people to really, as the research says, dissolve some of those assumptions and start back in square one, which allows people to not delete those memories or get rid of them, but rather rather acknowledge them and and acknowledge where they came from and provide a new opportunity to reset and rethink about how we talk to ourselves on a day-to-day basis, right? And I think that is something that is so incredibly powerful. And through those trials that we've seen time and time again, so many people, you know, really talk about how this experience was one of the most powerful experiences of their life, often challenging, right? This isn't just a blissful experience all the time. Sometimes there are things that psilocybin can bring up and out out of someone that they did not expect. And that really highlights the importance that we are focused on in Oregon as we build this program on safety and ensuring that someone with a certain type of health background can really be matched with a licensed facilitator that has experience in that specific background, right? There's going to be some people that are seeking services um, for wellness or spiritual purposes, and they may not have much of a health background um, to worry about. And then there's going to be people who absolutely do have, they're on medications, they have severe PTSD, they have family history of trauma, whatever it might be. And all of that needs to be incorporated into the assessment to determine, you know, the goodness of fit for someone accessing these services. And there's no part of this program that says you can't ever have services. But there are going to be aspects that say, okay, you've got a severe, you know, history of of trauma or PTSD. And it's important that we acknowledge and plan for that if you decide to move forward psilocybin services. So those are some of the things that we're really starting to dive into in the implementation process. And really, I think safety is one of the key pillars in which this entire program will be determined to be successful or not. And, and I'm confident that we're on the right path. We've got a lot of really good momentum. There's been a ton of amazing work that has been done by so many individuals and we've got a lot of work left to do.
0: Mm. When I do river trips with friends, we always say safety first. So.
1: <laughs> That's right. Yep. And when you fall out, you got a plan to get back in the boat.
0: Did you know you can find us on Google Play? Just look up Traverse Talks and enjoy the season. So far, the plan that I see, if we could walk the listener through it, is you. there's an assessment. And then um, you do background about their needs, where they are, like you mentioned, maybe past traumas or perhaps they're on medication. Then they go to a different level of assessment. I think in the what I read, a clinician f- helps further figure out where they are and if this is something that is viable for them. And with a professional who's with you while you're taking psilocybin in pill form, or- uh,
1: if the natural mushroom is is absolutely allowed. Uh, and what form that will come in, it will need to be taken orally.
0: But but somebody's with you during the whole. Are we going to call it a trip or a session?
1: You know, I personally don't like the word trip only because it has a negative connotation that leaves people to false assumptions. Um, And to unpack what I mean a little bit, you know, the word trip came from people who have bad experiences. And unfortunately, that is part of the stigma is that it's the mushroom itself that is causing this bad experience. And in my personal experiences and my research and with all of the hundreds, if not at this point, thousands of people that I've talked to in this endeavor, it's not the mushrooms. It's the set and the setting and the environment that makes up whether or not you have what would be deemed, quote unquote, a bad trip. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean that even in those settings that adverse events cannot still happen. Mm. They can, I think that they're going to be rare, but I do think that we need to be real and expecting that there will be adverse events. Uh, And it's so important that we create a safety plan for those situations, which is also a required aspect of this process, regardless of whether or not you have no health history to report at all, or you have a ton of health history that needs consideration. Everyone in this program is going to have a specific safety plan that is tailored to their needs, from medications to after the session integration, what's your plan for getting home, and what types of support might you need after a psilocybin session, right? The the concept of integration is so important here. Yeah. While integration is required to be offered after a session, it's not required to be taken. We heavily encourage it mm. uh, as uh, so many of the positive benefits come from integration, really working through and reflecting on the experience and taking the pieces of that experience and bringing them back and starting to really insert them into the rest of your life and mm. carry those lessons forward. The more that people are able to do that, the more that we see the prolonged positive effects of the session. and so. That's a little bit of of, of the process and the importance for creating space for, you know, the safety plans and the support networks that we all need in general outside of a psilocybin program, right, but are especially important within this program um, and I think are really an essential factor for the foundation of safety uh, in this program being a success.
0: Mm, Two things, integrating, uh, so in layman's terms, basically learning from what your experience was and using that knowledge then to move forward in your life, possibly to get over or work through uh, trauma or some depression. And then two, this sounds lovely and also incredibly expensive. So how are you going to have individualized plans for people and enough staffing to do this?
1: I want to be the first, well, I won't be the first, one of many to acknowledge that the financial barrier for this program is real. And is something that we all have to step up and not only acknowledge that, but we need to be creating our own solutions for this. The state is not going to cover the cost of this out of the gate. We hope in the midterm that we can incentivize them to start to get involved. We think that there are cost benefit analyses that we'll be able to look at once we have more data after a couple of years of operation. But right now, I would ballpark you know, a session, which is the preparation, the session itself and integration to cost around a thousand dollars. And that's a lot of money for a lot of people. And it's also no secret that major insurance companies are not going to cover this anytime in the near future either. And so where does that leave us? It leaves us with the responsibility to ensure that those who stand to benefit from having access that need access, but that cannot afford it, have it. And so Mm -hmm. what does that mean? That means raising money for grants for people to cover part or all of the cost of their sessions. That means incentivizing the businesses, the service centers, and the facilitators to have sliding scales, right? This means creating, you know, access funds that are specific for certain communities. One of the things that we know that we have to have is if we're going to serve certain communities, We need the people who are going to be working with those communities to come from those communities, right? You know, there's so many reasons why, you know, a white male like myself being a facilitator is not the best option for serving a community of color, right? There might be many people that are actually have been traumatized from the medical system in general, right? And we need to be very, very conscientious of all of the Nuances and details that need to go into ensuring that people have affordable, equitable access. And that is easier said than done. I don't think we actually have an example in current day medicine where the right balance between safety and access and equity has been struck. But again, that's our opportunity to seize. And as the first state to move forward, we take that opportunity very seriously. And I think that's why. We really want to make sure that we get this right out of the gate. It's not going to be perfect. The demand for services is going to outweigh the supply of licenses for years to come. And we need to reasonably manage those expectations. And we need to ensure, at the very least, out of the gate, when this program starts, that there are pipelines for funding and support and access for the communities who stand to benefit most.
0: Okay. Two things. That's a heavy lift for you. And two, you sound so thoughtful. And I'm sure the people you're with have thought of all that you mentioned, you know, diversity issues and trauma and recognizing who you are in this group. And so why do you care? And how did you get your mind opened up to making this program so progressive?
1: You know, it's, it's funny. I am involved in progressive drug policy reform because I recognized my white male privilege as a college student, actually. Um, And I recognized early on in my college career um, that my friends of color were not treated the same by law enforcement as I was treated. And when I looked into it further, I recognized. I had an idea of what my privilege was, but I didn't actually understand it until I understood the unfair application of the law to my friends of color, where I got off easy and they did not. And that did not sit well with me. Mm -hmm. And that is where I discovered an organization called Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Um, It sounded like a DARE 2.0 organization. I was like, what what is this? And actually it was the, was the, the literal opposite. Students for Sensible Drug Policy believes that we all have the right to put what we want in our bodies. And if we're going to do that, we should be educated. Which is a philosophy that this measure and this program embodies as well. If we're going to do this in a way, you know, where we want the outcomes that we're seeking, we have to do it in an educated, informed, and thoughtful way. And so, you know, just having the opportunity to create space for so many people above and beyond me or the people that are involved in my organization to come together and put forth a program that has consensus and is, you know, really thoughtful in the way that services are delivered and who they're delivered to and how and when and why, right? It's so important. And that's something that when I realized that privilege that I have, I knew I wanted to dedicate the rest of my life to progressive drug policy reform because of that.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And that's why I'm here today.
0: That's amazing. Um, this may be a personal question, but how are you making a living? Because I I feel as if those who are advocating for positive change in society, they have to do it on the side, because it's not like you get paid to do that.
1: Right. Yep. So I am very lucky and fortunate to be paid by the organization to be the executive director. So I have a salary. Um, I can tell you that i didn't have a salary for about seven years of my life as an advocate. Um, You know, I definitely put in my time and countless hours from, you know, advocating for medical cannabis patients um, back in college. That's where I got my start in, in the medical cannabis space is I was introduced as a young, energetic drug policy kid in college to bedridden medical cannabis patients that were literally the poster children of what it meant to be a medical cannabis patient. I mean, these are people who could not eat or function Mm. without their cannabis. And that really opened my eyes to the legitimacy of medical and therapeutic, you know, applications for what are otherwise federally illegal drugs. And I saw the hypocrisy in that. And I couldn't just sit by and not do anything about it. Um, you know, for, for better or worse, I'm, a, I'm an optimistic person that whenever I see a problem, I want to run after it until I can help solve it, right? And I think that while the Healing Advocacy Fund is certainly um, attempting to carry its own weight, we wouldn't be where we are today without the entire village that made Measure 109 happen. And we had people from over 300 cities vote yes on Measure 109 in the state of Oregon. I didn't even know there was 300 cities <laughs> in the state of Oregon, to be honest, but there are. And we collected signatures from at least one person in every one of those cities, if not hundreds of thousands of them. And so. It's taken a village, it will continue to take a village to push it forward. And, you know, the Healing Advocacy Fund is one of dozens of organizations that has been involved in this effort. And I'm incredibly proud and excited to play a small role and to be able to have the opportunity to work with so many other amazing individuals with experiences and expertise that is making this program what it is. connected with NWPB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search NWP Broadcasting on any of these platforms and press the follow button. That's NWP Broadcasting on Facebook,
0: Twitter, and Instagram, and you will never miss a post from us. Sam, will you share your psilocybin experience?
1: Sure, yeah. I've had several. Lucky. I I am, yes. And I think, you know, the one that was most profound for me was, you know, an experience with a couple of other friends who actually have a deep history in harm reduction and being guides for people um, that are going through this. Uh, And it was absolutely one of the most challenging experiences of my life. I saw a reflection of myself that not on psilocybin I was disgusted with. Mm. You know. And the psilocybin helped me understand how powerful my love is, not just for other people, but for myself. Mm. And that if I am able to love myself in a more compassionate way, that I would be able to love other people in a more compassionate way. And it really was a mirror And a reminder that in order to help do good in the world for others, you need to ensure that you're doing good for yourself first, to create space, to be able to move out into the world and to help create that space for others. And so psilocybin helped me do that. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really one of the beautiful and incredibly thoughtful things about Measure 109 is that It does its best to really meet people where they are at and allowing for a full spectrum of environments in which this can happen. And and, and what I mean by that is, you know, on one end of the spectrum, this is very much allowed within a a medical context, white light, stethoscope, you know, hospice, hospital type of environment. And there are certain people who want that type of environment or they need it because of the additional care that they need or the current situation that they might be in, right? I mean, we think of terminally ill cancer patients, right? Which there have been a lot of studies on. There's a specific environment that they need already. Hmm. And so to be able to apply psilocybin in that environment is incredibly valuable. On the other end of the spectrum, and you may have heard or seen of of, of these in, in the media already, there will be retreats, right? That will be far more expensive than the average individual session, but that provide yoga and massage and hiking activities and meditation, and it's a week-long retreat, and they provide all the meals, et cetera. So we'll have that option as well. But where I think the majority of services are going to exist from the environmental perspective is in a well-thought-out and designed office that doesn't necessarily have a whole bunch of bells and whistles, but it's comfortable It's inviting and it has the professionals there with the relationship with the client. And at the end of the day, you know, to have the types of outcomes that we believe people stand to have, you don't need much more than that for a lot of people. Some people do, and that's why we have the full spectrum. But I do think that a vast majority of folks that will have services um, are going to be, you know, in that just comfortable, inviting type of office environment that hopefully won't cost. Too much money uh, for licensees to kind of—they don't have to build it out in a really extensive way, and and it can be minimal and valuable hmm. uh, for everyone involved.
0: Sam, what are some misconceptions that you're trying to educate people on about psilocybin?
1: The biggest misconception about psilocybin is that it's a wonder drug that will cure everyone's ailments. Period. Full stop. That's it. There is no bigger misconception, frankly, and. It's our job to help educate people on that. You know, it's absolutely true that psilocybin is a powerful healing modality that shows so much promise for so many people. And in order for that promise to be realized, it's not a flip of a switch, it's Mm. not just one session, right? You know, there's a lot of things that go into it, and it's not for everyone. And so I think. That is probably the biggest education point that we are trying to hone in on now more than ever, especially with the general public to help manage expectations. In that, the media, for better or for worse, is attracted to all kinds of things. And unfortunately, a lot of it gets caught up in, you know, how much money can a company make off of this or, Mm. you know, other aspects of it, you know, that are part of the program, I guess, but it's not the focus that really matters. You know, the focus that really matters is that we're creating something new that stands to help people in ways that have not otherwise been helped. And frankly, I'm a big believer that, you know, instead of putting money first and figuring out how am I going to make my business viable, ask how you're going to help people. And then you'll figure out how to make it viable. You know, this is something as someone who has worked in the cannabis space for over a decade, You know, and I have a lot of people that come from that space that are interested in psilocybin and they're they're interested in making the money. I said, look, that's okay. You know, you need a business to be viable. But frankly, if you put people first in the mid to long term, you will make more money. I guarantee it. If you tell people how you plan to support people who cannot financially access your services otherwise, more people will service your business. Because I truly believe that unlike cannabis which is a retail environment, you take it home with you, et cetera. This psilocybin program, it's not about bag appeal. Mm. It doesn't matter what the mushrooms look like or what they smell like or, or anything of that nature. It's about the reputation of the people offering the services. What is their intent? And are they genuine in their intent? And are they being upfront with you about all of the different aspects that go into this? We need to have transparency and communication between the people who are seeking services and the people who are providing services. And as anyone who has gone through any type of psilocybin experience, whether it be with friends or in a professional setting or otherwise, I think we can all collectively agree that the relationship with the people that are with you there in that environment is essential and Mm -hmm. vital to the success and the outcomes that you may receive through psilocybin services. Mm -hmm. And so we're really trying to place a lot of emphasis on that.
0: Mm. What's another misconception? Because in my head, I can hear my mother already. It's addicting, but (laughs) I think she thinks everything is addicting.
1: Yes, yes. There is absolutely the unfortunate reality that psilocybin and many other psychedelic drugs get lumped in with the idea that all drugs are bad, right? We are still very much having to deal with the failed propaganda of the war on drugs, which turns out isn't actually a war on drugs. It's a war on people, um, and very often a war on people of color. And I think that we need to acknowledge that in this process and continue to remember that while we are creating these new programs and opportunities, there are still people in jail hmm. for drugs and for doing things out of the goodness of their heart. And that is why I really encourage other localities and states who are considering you know, creating a program like this to also remember we cannot allow psychedelic exceptionalism to run rampant. We have to remember that there are people out there that have been disproportionately targeted by the war on drugs and they stand to benefit from this too. And we need to acknowledge the failed war on drugs has real implications for people in their day-to-day lives. And so that's why I'm a big advocate for decriminalization of all drugs and licensed and regulated programs that allow for a broad population of people who are interested to have access in a safe and supervised and licensed type of environment.
0: Mm. Sam, what about methamphetamine decriminalizing that? Is that helpful to society?
1: I believe that people have the right to put whatever they want in their body. And whether people like that or not, that is a truth. And I believe that keeping drugs illegal and treating substance use or substance abuse as a criminal problem has failed. And I think there's a lot of science to back that up. And so I support the decriminalization of all drugs. We should not be putting people in jail for drug use, period.
0: Ah, Sam, thank you so much for this interview and for teaching us about Measure 109, and a little bit of 110, which is decriminalization. one, yes, in Oregon. I really appreciate your time.
1: This has been great, I really appreciate the opportunity. You
0: bet, thank you, Sam. All right, thank have you so day. much, have a good day. Bye. 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 Sam Chapman, the executive director of the Healing Advocacy Fund, a nonprofit organization supporting the implementation of Measure 109 in Oregon with education and advocacy. Thanks for listening to Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella.